Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now, I know you're not the sort of person who likes to miss out, so avoid that FOMO feeling and pop over to onenightinproduct.com and sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on the podcast app of your choice so you never have to worry about missing anything again. On tonight's episode, we talk about how our guest took his experience in Silicon Valley, took it back home to Canada, saw the lack of product thinking, mixed it up with a convenient French play on words, and launched a consultancy to help bring that product thinking home. We talk about the challenges of Moses syndrome and dealing with CEOs who think they're the second coming. We also talk about some of the approaches you can take to sell in product thinking and make sure you land your message with the executive team and your other stakeholders. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Paul Orchanian, entrepreneur, mentor and blogger, an experienced product leader who eats rejection for breakfast. Paul graduated from the School of Hard Knocks, then spent many years in Silicon Valley before returning north to Montreal to set up Bain Public, a consultancy helping companies transform their product management. As a former laser tag employee, he's now donning the bright green vest and taking pot shots at bad product management practices. Hi Paul, how are you tonight? Hi Jason, I'm doing great. Um, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. So first things first, Bain Public. Who are they and what problem do you solve? One of the biggest problems we saw in the Canadian ecosystem is that product-led culture wasn't really there. Statistics showed that on average in cities like San Francisco and New York City, 11% of high-tech hires tend to be in product management, whereas in cities like Montreal, and East Coast cities, most notably Canadian tech hubs, the, the actual need for product managers is below 5%. Uh, Montreal, as a matter of fact, doesn't even have product managers on the radar in terms of high-tech talent um, or team members to basically work within startups. So overall, uh, when I moved from San Francisco into Montreal, I realized how big of a problem this was. Uh, there was quite a burgeoning ecosystem here, lots of accelerators, but they weren't really being led from a product perspective. Marketing and sales had, had huge say in how these companies were shaping themselves. You know, you ended up in situations where companies would grow, you know, and be sales-driven organizations or marketing-driven organization, but hardly product-driven organization. So Bain Public uh, kind of came about from, from this need of uh, wanting to establish product-led culture the way I basically experienced it in San Francisco into Canadian organizations early on and within the Canadian startup ecosystem, uh, which is why we've basically provided a lot of workshops, methodologies, as well as different uh, ways where we collaborate with startups, scale-ups, as well as well-established SMB organizations on how to implement product management within their culture and how to empower them so this way they can have a positive impact on the company. So that's interesting because I was, I, was, I must admit, pretty confused uh, when, when you and I first spoke because, of course, Bain is also the name of a very large consulting firm, which I'm assuming is no relation. As a matter of fact, Bain Public in French uh, means public bath. And the idea came <laughs> from the, this concept of hygiene. A public bath is a place where 
people go to 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 basically remove the dirt. And I, I felt that every three months in a company, notably in startups, um, you know, the industry changes, the market changes, the competitors change, as well as the the customer and and their expectation changes. So it's it's important for a product manager to remind the executives, the CEO, as well as the key stakeholders that uh, it's it's quite important to uh, review the strategy, review the roadmap, and implement new initiatives that really align with that change. But, you know, you're right. When I originally came up with the name, Bain Public had that hygienic reference, but it also had this play on uh, the fact that Bain is, is a very well-known consulting firm, management consulting. And a lot of what we do is management consulting, helping establish product culture within an organization, which, you know, is a little bit of digital transformation a little bit of um, you know whispering in CEOs' ears, <laughs> and you know it 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 just it just makes it that people sometimes mistake us for Bain Consulting. We're not, but definitely appreciate that confusion. But don't Bain take issue with that? Or I mean, I, I guess you're still pretty small for them. But like, uh, I'm sure that they must take an interest in people using very similar names to them. I don't think Bain really takes an issue with it. To be honest, our name is is a French word that basically has this storyline about hygiene and and the fact that it's about public baths. But, you know, I'm sure that if they're looking for a product management function within their organization, I would be the first ones on their target list. And I'm sure that there would be some interest from them. So if they ever call, uh, I would be more than happy to listen. <laughs> There you go. Any publicity is good publicity, right? As we mentioned, you worked for a few companies down in Silicon Valley back in the day, building up your experience and uh, presumably your contacts. Uh, it's obvious why people would go to Silicon Valley, because of course, that's where all the, all the tech happens. But what made you decide it was time to come back? I came back from Silicon Valley after 10 years, mainly because of the cost of living. As a Canadian living in the Valley, once you start getting kids, you realize that the visa situation doesn't really play in your favor. Uh, as a Canadian, it's easy to go work in the Valley, although you know you have to go through this whole naturalization process uh, in order to stay there. And it, it gets it's an overhead that I didn't want to deal with. There's also the cost of living. Having two kids um, in, in, in San Francisco costs quite a bit. Family being here in Montreal, my wife's family being here in Montreal. I felt that the you know, we had we had done our dues there for ten years, learned a lot, really accelerated our career. My understanding and you know just being uh, getting into product management there and understanding the way most Silicon Valley firms see it, you know, was a great advantage to, for me to take this leap, come to Montreal, and try to establish what I've seen there into organizations here. I'm sure everyone will benefit from it. Yeah, it's interesting though because I'm assuming you still have a nice little black book of contacts that you can uh, that you can fall back on, basically, given your time there. I do. Uh, I still maintain a lot of good relationships with people there. You know, the product space in the valley is uh, everyone knows everyone. You know, companies grow and explode rather fast over there. Um, <laughs> you might be the product manager in a startup, and you get to meet some very interesting stakeholders, and within a year that startup runs out of money and you just got to move on to your next adventure. So uh, <laughs> most people know who the good people are and it's, it's, it's great to you know have them working from one company to the other in the valley 
and in my case, I usually use that as a reference to 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 ask other product managers if I'm basically unsure of how to how things are, are are you know to be dealt with within different organizations. Montreal and Canadian organizations have challenges that you don't usually see in, in Silicon Valley firms, but it's 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 a it's great to have that. Rich Marinov is is one guy I follow quite a bit. Uh, love everything he does and his approach of parachuting into companies. And it's great to be able to follow them, whether it's through their newsletters uh, or having discussions every time I'm down there. But do you think that having spent that time in Silicon Valley and then coming back to, as you put it, a, a smaller pond, maybe a, a less developed product scene, that, that that gives you a certain cachet or, or credibility that, that helps you stick out in your local neck of the woods? It can help. I mean, I'm not the type who's going to use that to, to my advantage or to move what Bain Public does forward. I, I believe that there are various challenges in organizations here in Montreal and in Canada that you don't see in Silicon Valley where product culture is ingrained. So you, it's hard for you to find organizations in the Valley that are being led by you know, an overly ambitious sales team. <laughs> that happens, but you don't usually get into those types of situations as much. You know, uh, over there, there is a there's an understanding of what product is, whereas here, nobody even knows what the difference is between a product manager and a project manager. Now, <laughs> I'm not the type of guy who's going to come in and say, you know, um, um, you're going to do exactly what I say because I come from the valley. So I usually try to be pretty humble about my approach. I think that the thought leadership that we do as an organization as well as all the giving that we do and, and the workshops and working with accelerators and mentoring and coaching. Uh, you know, we give free one-on-one -on -one coachings to any startup who's Canadian who wants to basically have a chat with, uh, with me. So I feel that those are the elements that really give us a cachet and credibility uh, and, and less about the Silicon Valley aspect. But I do use it as a foundation for everything we do. You know, it's 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 clear that I'm aligned with uh, the best practices and uh, the best in breed companies that definitely come from there. But when you first moved back to Montreal, you started working for Edelman and, and stayed there for a few years before starting up Bain Public. So, what was the catalyst for moving from a big company and actually doing your own thing? Because I can understand why you wanted to do it, but why did you decide to do it when you did? Well, to be honest, um, my choice wasn't to move to Montreal and work for Edelman, although they did offer me a great position, which happened to be in Montreal and allowed me to move my family and establish myself there for the first two years. Um, but uh, w within, within, I'd say, a year and a half, I was feeling uh, a little, you know, uh, and we, I wasn't doing any product management. Edelman is a, a PR service firm. Everything is very service-oriented, and uh, I felt that even though I was leading a, a team of uh, 20 developers, I, we weren't really doing any product management. We were just you know, um, providing solutions to customers based on their needs. Although, you, as you may know, um, when you're in the service sector, you can't say no. You can provide guidance to a client, but ultimately, the client's always right. So, the catalyst was really realizing that, um, you know, we might have a team of engineers working on some prestigious brands, building interesting websites and perhaps some applications. But the real catalyst was when I realized that our entire organization, including the CFO, just didn't see the different business models that could be explored. 
ultimately, when you're in a service firm, you're selling people's time. And when you're in a product firm, you're actually trying to grow a product that's going to contribute and, and grow itself. For example, a product can basically be built once and provide you revenue for the next 10 years, whereas uh, you can build something in a service firm and you'll have to keep building it over and over again for you to keep uh, maintaining that revenue. So the catalyst really was where, where I realized that I was wasting my time within that organization and uh, decided to take that leap of faith. The, leap of, the, the real trigger came when two CEOs of two organizations that I was talking to at the time, just having breakfast with them and just giving him some advice, asked me what it would take for someone like me to, to help them. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just asked them to make me a contract and Bain Public was born. So, okay, so you start Bain Public and you launch on your own and you start doing what you're doing. But do you do that on your own or do you, do you get a team from the start? And, and how did that work? I started on my own. As I mentioned previously, I signed two retainers with two small and medium organizations, one of them who, who are still our client, Watch Mojo and start putting product culture within those organization. And at the beginning, it was doing it as a service, as a consultant, more or less. And I realized that the more I worked with different organization, the more I had a, a templated approach, which was kind of the beginning of the SOAP approach that, that, that we do here at Bain Public. And I decided to templatize it, to document it, and to start hiring people who might have had some product management backgrounds or all kinds of different backgrounds. Because, you know, as you know, product managers, there's no product management school. So, you know, best way to find a product manager is to train one. So found uh, resources who had various interesting backgrounds, such as UX or uh, venture capital, and basically trained them with the SOAP approach. And today we're a team of five and um you know for with various degrees of expertise with the soap framework but uh, everybody has a superpower that allows <laughs> us to parachute into a client provide all of our expertise in order to help them but what sort of companies are you working for at the moment is it i know we were speaking earlier that you've been working with some sort of early stage startups is it just startups or do you work a lot with sort of medium to late stage or big companies as well well we have three types of companies we work with directly. Primarily, we're trying to work with startups because we believe that we, we need to give to the Canadian ecosystem that's within our mission. And um, we realize that they don't understand what product management is. And the earlier we get to work with them, the, the, the easier it is to basically implement that culture. So within that, you know, we work with fintech startups, uh, SaaS startups, startups that are in manufacturing or IoT or AI. And I find that's the funnest uh, types of clients to work with because I'm engaging directly with the founders. We're having constructive debates. They're questioning themselves, which makes it really easy to, to work with them. We also have scale-ups and small and medium enterprise companies. Uh, the SMEs tend to be bigger organizations who basically hit a wall they might have had a brick and mortar product or uh, attempted uh, going into digital, creating their own products and somehow got stuck with this fight between IT and marketing, and which is always the case because there is no such thing as product within those organizations. So they're always trying to figure out who leads the product. And, you know, if it's IT, it ends up basically being overly technical and not really 
close to what the user needs. And if it's marketing, then it becomes very glossy and uh, full of bells and whistles, but not really adding much value. So those are the types of organizations we work with. Uh, the hardest ones are the scale-ups, to be honest. Those are the organizations that already benefited from a, a little bit of funding. And usually those CEOs are the ones who, you know, because they got some funding, are reluctant to open the doors to product culture, uh, perhaps because they, they think that what they've done is product market fit. But I, we often parachute into those organizations and realize that they've really grown exponentially given you know, a huge push from the sales team or a huge push from the marketing team. But you know, 80% uh, of the revenue is actually coming from other things than the product team. And that's not something that's scalable. Getting into those organizations becomes very hard because you often get the CEO who, what I say, suffers from Moses syndrome, which is, you know, went to the mountain, came back with uh, investor money, and uh, <laughs> oftentimes isn't really interested in hearing about product culture. And it's funny because the, the most of the VCs here in Canada don't really encourage that. Uh, they'll see a product, they'll see a CEO, they'll see something interesting, but they just, they just won't be encouraging them to, to consider being product-led. And oftentimes, they, they rely on the CEO to be the one who's going to keep innovating toward and adding to the, to the value of the product. But that CEO gets stuck into to all kinds of other things like fundraising and talking to building a team, HR, all kinds of things. And, and that creates quite a bottleneck. So we come in and help with them. Okay. But we were also talking earlier before this call about some of the mentorship work that you've done with with early stage startups. So going in and sitting alongside maybe some of the people that they've already got working with them and kind of bringing a fresh approach and concentrating a little bit more on product fundamentals. Do you think that's an underserved market in this early stage mentoring arena? Like, do you feel that that's something that gives you an edge and something that you can that you do that's maybe a little bit different to some of the other mentorship that these people can get? With regards to the mentorship that these startups get in accelerators, uh, it's pretty biased. You know, these accelerators are in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and they happen to surround themselves with mentors who are business leaders who have proven to be successful in, in their journey. But unfortunately, what I really realize is that most of these advisors and coaches and mentors are mainly uh, ex-businessmen who have either worked in industry for a long period of time or who have really started their own company. But given that those companies weren't really digital, you end up with a lot of marketing as well as a lot of sales, which means that a lot of the advice that these startups are getting is really about how to position yourself on the market and how to basically you know, create a sales pipeline. I don't think I, I, it's great for them in order to, you know, those are the fundamental basics Although, um, you know, as, as a product, you know, creator or founder of a startup, you, you're always looking for something different. And if 90% of your mentors are constantly, um, you know, asking you to think about how to market themselves, yourself outbound and how to basically, you know, a cold call people, I don't think it really helps them because no one's really asking the real question is, is, is this product adding any value? And how do we basically make this product better? So. I think then that the reason we get a lot of you know great feedback from our workshops and mentoring sessions is that we we might as well be the only ones in 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 the country at this point really providing product 
centric mentorship. And I think that's why, uh, you know, the, that white space tends to be one that we have, you know, it's quite easy for us to get inside an accelerator and propose, you know, the, our, our mentorship, our help, our workshops. And, and usually it's appreciated because uh, there's, there's a big gap at this point. One of the things I know you have developed within your company is something called the SOAP framework for product planning and roadmap prioritization. Now, obviously, everyone around the world is now going to be like, oh, hooray, another framework. But why is this one different? Uh, and what can it help teams do? Well, SOAP is not really a framework. It's mainly methodology. Uh, by that, one, uh, is, it, you know, there's, there's tons of ways you could do product management. And the reality is that as a product manager, as you go through a quarter, a three-month period where you're evaluating a market and industry, you, you start using a lot of tools and, and, you know, a lot of frameworks, you know, SWOT analysis, for example. You use it one day, uh, maybe, maybe a week, and then you'll move on to, to another tool. You, you'll just basically start accumulating a series of frameworks that will work for you. SOAP is a cocktail of tools, best-in-breed tools, things that most product managers are familiar with, you know, uh, put together in a sequence that would allow any junior product manager or, pro or product manager team within a company that doesn't have a product culture or a senior a stakeholder who understands product to, to basically go through the day-to-day -day of a product manager. What should I do the first three weeks of a quarter? Should I be strategizing or should I be listening to customers? What's, when's a good time? You know, one of the biggest issues we see is that the CEO will ask their product team, their young, uh, inexperienced product team to listen to customers. I mean, you know, that's a very different thing if you're a B2B company versus a B2C company. And also, what's the point of listening to customers throughout uh, every week, week in, week out, three to five hours a week? I mean, that could be a waste of time if, for example, you're in a B2B organization and the sales team and the customer support team already is hearing it from those customers. And, and at this point, you're duplicating. So, you know, uh, it's very important to for product managers to understand what their day-to-day -day should be about. It's not about doing everything in, in the same day. It's really about these strategic times where it's, you know, there is a time to listen to customers, there's a time to groom your backlog, there's a time to talk to stakeholders, and there's a time to prioritize. And if you were to do it all in one, uh, you'll end up, first of all, um, you know, uh, driving yourself crazy, getting overworked, <laughs> and, and no one wants a product manager who's constantly listening to customers and prioritizing because you're not really roadmapping at that point. You're just doing this agile thing, which is, you know, taking requests and identifying the ones that uh, require solutions that work, but you're not really contributing to the growth of the company. So SOAP ends up being a methodology that just provides the guardrails for junior early product manager or, or, or an immature product management team within an organization who's trying to establish a product culture on defining what these people should do day in, day out, week in, week out, uh, in order to, you know, provide a roadmap and, and review that roadmap on a regular basis in order to solve customer problems or provide solutions that's going to help uh, the company grow, uh, let it be through revenue or other means. That's interesting because you've, you've mentioned a couple of times about product thinking, and we we, you know, we mentioned it earlier as well about kind of service firms and stuff like that. 
I know one thing you and I have spoken about before this call was some of the struggles that service-oriented firms and, and service-oriented leaders can have when they're we're trying to move into being a more product-led organization. Now, you've obviously got some experience in that area. What are some of the biggest challenges you've seen in, in making that transition? That's a very good question. There's nothing worse than a hybrid firm uh, or hybrid company. So we're talking about a product company that is very service-minded, where a lot of the customer problems are perceived as being immediate issues that need to be corrected. And and I feel that a lot of organizations suffer from this, where they'll actually add uh, to the customer support team a separate uh, division who's responsible of you know grabbing all of these these issues and immediately turning them into solutions whether they or they contribute to the growth of the product or to the or the company is irrelevant uh, and mainly you see this in b2b firms where there is this service oriented uh, aspect of you know trying to keep their their big customers happy and some of the biggest challenges there is is how to avoid the blackmail uh the biggest blackmail coming from the sales team uh, basically you know letting the ceo know that a customer will churn if these tickets or these issues aren't resolved or uh letting them know that their sales department won't be able to close on serious uh new customers uh mainly because of the flaws the product has and and that creates a hybrid organization where the product team as well as the engineering team is simply building features to satisfy the needs of of uh, the sales or customer service department I mean, you see that from marketing as well, but it usually tends to be biased towards the sales team. And I have nothing against that. It's it's just important to equip the product team with a not only with a process, but with the tools for them to be able to prioritize some of these requests. There's nothing worse than a CEO of an organization that empowers a sales team with with the you know uh, given the blackmail that uh, that he receives daily of churn or um, customers that won't uh, that won't sign versus a product team that doesn't have the tools such as analytics in order to put fact for fact so you know you'll get into situations where you know um, customer support will complain about um, dissatisfied customers. The sales team will ring an alarm bell if the product team doesn't have the data to prove that that section or that feature is underutilized um, and hardly uh, a problem with most of the other customers. Then I'll, you know you you get in a situation where you're having conversations in the present. It's about my point of view versus your point of view, and that's not an, that's not an argument a product team can win because they really don't have the empowerment at that point to be able to justify why a particular request should not move forward. It's pretty simple. Money talks. So um, so if you get into an organization that has this hybridity where the product is actually being built by a customer service sales team using blackmail, you know, it's important to, to identify that, you know, what is really driving revenue? Uh, if you think about a product, a SaaS product, for example, you know, uh, you build it once and uh, it can actually drive revenue for quite a while without it needing any adjustments or changes. 
just think of um, you know uh, some some great products. I mean, you're always doing evolutionary adjustments to it, but you know once once you found that product market fit, uh, that product can stay as is for a long period of time and bring in some considerable amount of revenue. So the product valuation at that point would be something in the eight x ten x range where you know you could actually not touch that product for eight to ten years and it'll actually bring in the same amount of revenue. On the other hand, when the sales team and uh, the service-oriented people within an organization are trying to justify additional features in order to increase revenue, I mean, the reality is that adjusting a product in order to satisfy a client, I mean, that type of revenue is actually a service fee, which you know most service organizations have a 1x to 2x valuation because ultimately all you're doing is selling your time, the time to fix a bug, the time to add a feature. So, you know, a CEO needs to understand the valuation of the product and the contribution of the product and engineering team versus the contribution of a sales organization. The pressures that those teams bring usually ends up, uh, you know, valid. Yeah, absolutely. Show me the data. Let's talk about it. But if it's if it's the type of, you know, if we were to build this feature, I'll be able to charge the customer $50,000. I mean, that has that that's not the type of revenue um a startup product startup ceo should be going after and um so the biggest challenge really is to identify and and make us make the founders as well as the the, the stakeholders realize that the short term revenue you get from servicing these customers is nothing compared to the long term revenue you get out of building a product right and maintaining it in a lean way uh, so to maximize the amount of revenue you're going to get um, long-term. Yeah, so that's interesting because there's a lot of discussion and there's been a lot of commentary over the last, well, <laughs> few weeks, but also much longer about this project versus product manager dichotomy and also the feature factory that that then supposes, the fact that people are just sitting there moving requests in between the founders or the leadership team and the engineers and then reporting back on the progress. And that's obviously not at all uncommon and you could even consider in some cases the majority in certain industries. But what are some of the ways that you try to suggest that, say, the product manager on the front line could try to affect that? Is it possible for them to do that or does it always have to come from the top? Good question. I mean... A lot of companies are feature factories and product managers are perceived as project managers and you know, they're always being asked for dates. And yeah, I do believe that product management needs to be empowered within an organization and it is a top-down empowerment. Although I do believe that if you're a product manager working in an organization where you're being treated as a project manager and you know, you're, you're servicing client needs, uh, I think it's, it's important to equip yourself with data data in order to have a prioritization discussion. And if, for example, you know, it's it's not too hard to get your product backed up with a, um, an analytics software. Google Analytics is free, does require some bit of work in order to tag every feature. Although, you know, just by using some t a tool like that, you know, you're able to have some pretty interesting conversations in order to prove or disprove certain uh, feature asks. So prioritization, empowerment of prioritization, asking the CEO to set up a meeting where all these service requests could be debated, that's a great thing. But if you're showing up there without the facts, then you might as well not show up because ultimately revenue speaks. 
and you know as a product manager if you feel like you're in this feature factory and and you haven't equipped yourself with the right data then it's a losing battle so my recommendation or suggestions really for those pms would be to arm yourselves with the facts customer talking to customer is one thing but you know customers you can have you can talk to five customers they'll have an opinion and customer support will be able to disprove that and tell you that there's five other customers who don't have the same opinion. So you know, it's important to really equip yourself with the right data, maybe work with customer service. They're a great proxy to get some qualitative feedback about customer happiness, satisfaction, dissatisfaction about certain areas of the product. Equip yourself with the right tools, the analytic tools to be able to gather even more facts and uh and you know those are the tools you need to be able to do some proper prioritization and be able to say no and if if you don't then it's a it's a losing battle now i was going to say so that all sounds fantastic and makes a lot of sense but do you think that from your experience or just gut feel that there are some companies that are just better off staying professional services led and not even trying or do you think that anyone can do it if they give it enough of a push I think that it depends on the momentum. It depends on the leaders in place. If you're working with an organization that has a rainmaker as a as a CRO who's who's proven himself to the CEO, it's very very hard to make that organization pivot. But so if I if I were to say you're better off staying as a professional services firm. I think no CEO really wants to hear that. No product CEO really wants his organization to be perceived as a service organization. I think there's micro steps organizations can take to shift away from being service-led or, or hybrid. One of the first things they can do is really try to stop you know, this, this waterfalling of things. It's important that all stakeholders get into a room together in order to discuss what the roadmap should look like for the next three months. Uh, three months is a very short time. It allows for num- numerous customer issues to be addressed while we're trying to innovate uh, on, on, on some other uh, fronts of the product. Getting into those discussions collaboratively, collectively, really leads to, to new insights. So it's important for, for organizations to recognize that it's not always about being led by one department. It's really about a collective. And, um, and the, best, the best way I've learned to approach these situations is looking at these companies and identifying one particular department that has achieved a grandiose process or workflow within the organization. For example, a CFO would be able to have everyone complete their expense reports in this laborious software with a process that you know is is very time consuming i would i would ask myself how did this cfo uh, you know propose this this process and how how did he get buy in on this process he or she i'm so sorry and i feel that when you identify another department it could be marketing it could be hr it could be anybody if you identify a department in the organization that has managed to create a process that is time-consuming, but when asked why they basically put it in place, they can defend it. They can defend it with some serious business value. 
my question to the CEO is then if within your organizations you found one department to to create value through a painstaking process, what's preventing you from empowering another department to create another painstaking process, which is the products prioritization process and roadmapping process in order to benefit the company? So the key really is to identify one area of the organization where process has been put in place and it works and then question why that one? Why that and not product? And that usually tends to change their mind. So you said before this call that you hate rejection, but you eat it for breakfast. So do you think it's important to be able to handle people saying no? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think that being positive about yourself is important. Not being too affected by rejection. You know, as a product manager, I always say, you know, you have you can have strong opinions, but you should hold them lightly. And I think that <laughs> when you're having a debate, uh, and it's not about, you know, when I use the word debate, it's a pretty strong word because uh, it's about constructive conversations with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and not about conflict. And so when you're having these discussions with stakeholders and people come in with strong opinions, I mean, you come in with strong opinions as well. And it's important for you to be able to say no. Uh, Don't say no. Say no, not now. Eventually, we'll get to it. But make sure that you have data. Make sure that you're able to prove your point. I I don't think that product managers, you you know, you might talk to customers, but if you're not quantifying it, putting it in numbers, it doesn't really help you have a debate with any other stakeholder within the organization. So being rejected because a particular feature moved forward and even though you said no, is, you know, maybe that's a wake-up call for a product manager to identify what went wrong in this conversation. Was I, didn't I equip myself with the right facts, the right data, the right reasoning? Because ultimately it's about making sure that if it doesn't help the product grow, then you should be able to to make a point that it's not a feature that needs to be insight into the product. So, you got to get ready to be rejected as a product manager, but I think that should be your 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 motivation motivator. Uh, I mean, as a product manager who cares about a product, you know, losing battles time and time again might be you know it's might be easy for you to to blame it on the hybridity of your company being too service oriented, blame it on the executives. But overall, I think that you know a product manager should be able to equip himself with the right tools to be able to say no. So that includes data, that includes the qualitative feedback from customers, and that also includes the empathy, uh, how you go about having these discussions. Because ultimately, if everybody in the company hates, hates you, because you're, <laughs> you're up front, you're, you're, you're opinionated, and you yell uh, louder than everybody else, then that's not going to win you too many battles. Uh, sounds fair enough. So where can people catch up with you after this if they want to find out more about the uh, SOAP framework or whatever SOAP approach or uh, any any other advice that you can give them? We actually have demo hours for SOAP. You could just go on our website and uh, and schedule a demo. It's made to introduce people to the SOAP approach, uh, introduce them to our company, introduce them to how we can help them. It's usually done in in a pretty laid back approach where we're not there just to pitch you soap and how we can help you. We're really there to listen to your problems, 
some of the issues you're having within your organization and, and just to kind of like, you know, provide some guidance based on the prompts. So those uh, can be easily ac- um, accessed through the website. I also offer, offer free one-on-one mentoring and coaching every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, anybody can register through our website. Just go to our website and you'll see that there is a free coaching button uh, on the work with us page. Although those are reserved to startup founders and basically, you know, I'll, I'll, there, there's, a, there's a special keyword that needs to be entered. And most people who go through accelerators and attend our workshops usually get that uh, special, uh, special word. Alternatively, if you really want to reach out to me, you could uh, just ping me at info at bainpublic.com or just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Sounds, as, as always, sounds like a fair offer. That's been a fantastic chat and really interesting to talk about some of your experience and some of the perspectives on the challenges of instilling a product culture in, in certain types of company. And, and obviously, the, the, the battle continues. Hopefully you and I can stay in touch. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Jason. I really appreciated this conversation. I think that looking at product management from a Silicon Valley, San Francisco angle is great, but a lot of other cities around the world that are creating startup hubs uh, are suffering from the same problems that we're trying to, to solve here at Bain Public. So let it be in Montreal, let it be in Toronto or Vancouver or somewhere in Europe or in Asia. There's a lot of similarities. There are a lot of the same problems. So uh, thank you again for giving me the time today to talk about this. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the conversation interesting and inspiring. If you did, again, it would be great if you could pop over to onenightinproduct.com and sign up so you can get notified of future episodes. Go to the podcast app of your choice and subscribe or share this episode widely with your friends on social media so they can be inspired too. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thank you and good night.